Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. I guess I should hit the record on the backup here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Today is Monday. It's January the 8th. And I think we had a fairly consequential weekend because we had the anniversary of January the 6th. Now, I commemorated said thing by flying out to New York, which is not my favorite thing to do. I am not a big fan of going to New York in general. I don't like being behind enemy lines, but I did so because we had a fundraiser for the Stand in the Gap Foundation, and it benefited folks like Sarah McAbee's family, who has a husband in jail, in prison. And so... I wanted to make sure that we were there to commemorate it and to try to help them out. I'm going to try to boast the sound. I just heard a little bit of you guys soon. I try to follow you guys up. So there we go. We got a little bit more sound. What I want to tell you guys is that I think January 6th, which should be something that we kind of can all agree on, was one thing. I actually did a show on this a while back. I was thinking about this while I'm sitting in the shower. And what I realized is that I've kind of gotten away from this. The idea that the January 6th um, day, the, the moments of that day were, were an American Rorschach test. That still holds so true. It still holds true today. The American Rorschach test. If you're not familiar with the Rorschach test, it's the ink blot. You fold it in half, you open it up, and then a psychologist asks you, hey, tell me what you see. And what you see is supposed to tell us something about who you are and the way that you see things. And the way that you see the, the events of January 6th with all the information that are, uh, that are out there. There's all kinds of stuff going backwards. I watched people like Ryan Riley talking about the sedition hunters and how people were being really awful and saying they wanted to get in there and hang congressmen. Then you see the other side of the coin and you see people showing peaceful protesters that are just out there in the world doing their thing. All this stuff. It should tell us that there's a mixture of things that happened on January 6th. It's a mixed bag. It's all, not all one thing and not all the others. And so oftentimes the Rorschach test, the game is, is like, oh, do you see like an elephant in the clouds? Or do you see, you know, a man uh, holding an umbrella? If you can see both of those, then you can probably see something closer to true. And right now the political right is running one narrative in some ways. The political left is running another that is basically antithetical to that. And the truth is somewhere in the middle, which is why I really appreciated being on this trip this weekend. I got to see Steve Baker in person. That's fantastic. And Steve's got some really neat stuff. We talked kind of offline where the uh, prying eyes of government technology could not be involved in it. And I think you guys are going to see some things coming out. They've debunked even more of the January 6th narrative. This is very important, I think, for those families that are involved in it. But um, more importantly, it's important for America because the Democrats have decided they're going to run on this January 6th was the worst day in American history narrative. And I've said the word narrative about eight times since we got started. We're going to start with that right after we say thanks to a sponsor. And I want to do that real quickly. Let's do um, Four Patriots. Uh, our friends over at Four Patriots have a series of emergency preparedness deals available for you. If you go to four, the number four, Patriots with an S on the end, dot com, fourpatriots.com slash Kyle, or just use the promo code Kyle. And you can see some of the things that are on the screen right now, What you'll see is a 72-hour food pack. This is like basically the cheapest hedge against disaster that you could have. The cheapest hedge is 30 bucks, 72 hours worth of calories, buy yourself a few minutes, a few days of thinking time. Um, in, in a disaster, basically, the, the worst thing you could do is be without hope and a plan. And having something like this is going to be able to change that for you. Like it's a $30 purchase. Most of you guys are probably doing $30 purchases if you have to go and buy two cups of coffee these days. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. But check out for the number four patriots.com slash Kyle or for patriots.com using promo code Kyle and see what's out there that you need to prepare. Fill up the holes in your life so that you're not being caught unawares, that you're not uh, prepared. And if you're watching us on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin, again, you can find that it's pretty easy. I'm always using the promo code Kyle and the username Kyle Serafin. I don't get too creative about it, but if you're there, give us a thumbs up on Rumble if you're sitting there watching, and we do appreciate it. Let's get started right away. I mentioned the word narrative a, a dozen times already now. So here it is. Let's talk about narrative. This is the definition, the dictionary definition, narrative, it's a noun, plural, narratives, a spoken or written account of connected events, a story. Okay, that doesn't sound nearly as prompt, but when we get into what it can also be, some of the secondary definitions is the way that we tend to use it right now. Because January 6th is as much a narrative, a uh, sort of a concentrated oral history 
which has all the flaws and failings of human beings who tell the story. There are thousands of individual personal stories. There may be hundreds of thousands of people who saw it. And most of those people, upwards of 90%, maybe upwards of 95% of those people saw a peaceful protest asking for a redress of grievances as they are constitutionally allowed. And a small number of people, under 5,000, it might be less than that, it's probably less than 3,000, were involved in something that was kinetic and physically violent. Whether they started or not is not really relevant. That's not really my world. There are people like Steve Baker who are out there telling you, he said that the first blood was drawn by protesters. Now, whether those were instigated protesters or not is another animal. But the protesters were the first ones to get violent. And then what happened with the police in different areas all happened differently. And all of these different sections, everybody who was in part of their own little oral history, who has their own version of the narrative, they all saw something different. But what we're seeing from the political left, most of which were not there on that day, or they were you know, behind closed doors and running off, this is the definition that's most relevant to you on the screen. A representation of a particular situation or process in such a way as to reflect or to conform to an overarching set of aims or values. To conform to an overarching set of aims or values. And that, I think, is exactly what we're talking about when we're looking at messaging and the way that the way that the Democratic Party representatives, the folks that are running for office right now, particularly the president, but it goes all the way down to even some of the lower elected officials, even in state houses, what they are doing is pushing narrative. It's not true. It's not necessarily false. It's a overarching set of principles or aims or values. They are looking to forward an agenda, and that agenda doesn't have to talk about everything. One of the things that Steve Baker and I discussed when we talked about Ryan Riley uh, off the line, you know, just kind of sitting at a table in a lobby, was that Ryan Riley is very good at reporting things that are true. What he doesn't do is the mitigating factors that also existed. He doesn't want to say the context for which things have been shared. So one of his tweets that I saw, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to delay, I'm going to be on this the entire show, back and forth, this whole January 6th thing, because it is the, the plank that the Democratic Party wants to hang out for you. So we might as well talk about it in detail. One of the things that Ryan Riley said is that, look, they said, we're looking for you, you pedophiles, and we're going to hang whoever is involved in that. We're going to find you. But what you don't hear is him captioning the rest of the audio, which says, we're not here to hurt you. We're just Americans who lost our jobs. We're here to peacefully petition for a redress of grievances, stating the words that are actually in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. And so it's an incomplete. It's true, but incomplete. If you were a fact checker, you would say it lacks context. That's the, that's the political left's favorite thing to do, lacks context. So that seems problematic. If we're a country that is interested in truth and in quote-unquote democracy or a democratic process, even if we're a constitutional republic, if we're interested in these things, should we not be trying to get closer to accurate statements? Should we not be trying to get closer to things that are in fact true? I would, I would propose that we should. That's the right way to do it. I'm going to show something to you that kind of changed my perspective on something. It was a good readjustment. Uh, re because we have a lot of time away from it. I refer to this as a 2021, January 2021 vibe with 2024 sobriety. Okay, when you break these bullet points out, the reason why there were hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall on January 6, 2021, and the reason why this country had such a feeling of unrest, the reason why I felt like it was always going to be a trap, which I'm fairly confident it was. We just saw Tucker... Representative Higgins said it emphatically that he believes it was a trap. Now, he has access to more information than you and I do. I hope that he's correct. I hope that he has receipts, that he has evidence to back it up. The way that he spoke sounds like he did. And he comes from a law enforcement background, so that actually feels pretty good. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Unfortunately for most of us, investigations take time. They cannot be done quickly if they are done correctly. And so for people to call it an insurrection and to start pushing out the narrative right away, it always made me think it was false. And that should make you think it was false too. If someone tells you something just happened and we've got all the facts, look, there's a reason why Dan Bongino, who is a former investigator, who has an investigative mindset, who was a police officer and a federal agent, understands the concept of the Bongino rule is not specifically a Dan Bongino concept. It's like, okay, something happened. Let's figure out what it was. 
Let's figure out what that thing is. The Bongino rule, which he quotes all the time, and I absolutely love it. I've texted him when things happen. I say, hey, Bongino rule in effect. And he always kind of smirks about it. We wait. We look into things. Some investigations can be done very quickly. Certain things like uh, there was a shooting at an apartment complex. Who was it? Who got hurt? Who got, uh, you know, who survived? Who saw it? That's the end of that. It's not very complicated. When you start putting hundreds of thousands of people's stories together, it's going to inevitably take time. And the left doesn't want that right now. The political left, they want to just stick on the same drum that they've been beating since the first few days after the events that happened on January 6th, which was a riot, which was also a peaceful protest, which were people who got out of hand and also people who showed up and did what they're allowed to do. That's the American Rorschach test. That's the way that if you see it as one or the other, it's problematic. It's very problematic because you're not taking into account how much was there and how long it takes to actually assess all these things. Here's what changed my uh, my mind a little bit about the way I've been looking at it. And this comes from Charlie Kirk, who you guys may know from Turning Point USA. I'm gonna throw some of the highlights on the screen here. I'm gonna read almost the entire tweet. And not to plagiarize it, I wanted to give 100% credit, so I even put a picture of him up in here. I wanna hit a lot of the bullet points that he mentioned because they're very relevant. I think they're very relevant to the way that we look at this. We have to remember when we deal with law enforcement uh, shootings or use of force, when we deal with any of these types of investigations on the way things happen, what we do is we assess whether the person at that time was reasonable for what somebody at that time would know. It's relevant what the law enforcement officer got in the 911 call when they're dispatched. It's relevant what they knew about the subject before they showed up on scene. It's relevant that somebody claimed that there was a firearm involved or there wasn't. The things like this are all part of it because a reasonable officer in the same circumstances should be expected to act reasonably. And in the same way, I think this is a great reframe. Charlie Kirk says, imagine being in President Trump's shoes for a moment on January 6th when you get word that the Capitol is being swarmed. You consider that you were a near lock to be a two-term president in February of 2020. You delivered one of the best economies seen for three years after uh, before China unleashed uh, a lab-grown virus. Uh, virus, rather, on the planet, and you warn the states repeatedly of mass mail-in ballots, but the Democrats forced them to go through. These are all true things. We know that was true. We know it was problematic at the time. You watched as election officials caved to COVID fear mongering and relaxed election integrity measures, which violated election laws and state constitutions. This happened in multiple. When we see something that says, oh, well, uh, I actually had a discussion with a Reuters reporter who was a little bit advocacy. He was he was doing advocacy. He was asking questions. Maybe you could call them challenging questions. But if you ask me, he was trying to push his his narrative, which is fine. And when he said things like, "Well, you know, every single court case that that uh, that was brought against the election integrity, they all failed. That's why Trump wasn't able to challenge them." And I said, "Well, you have to be honest about this if you're going to be serious." And there's two things that happened. Number one, they were found not to have standing. You couldn't prove that election fraud happened, so therefore your civil case showed you did not have standing. That's not the same thing if we're being honest about it, which I'd like people at Reuters to be. And the second thing is, is that there were procedural errors, which is to say the legal team behind Trump is not perfect and did a bunch of things that failed. People brought cases that were not either represented the, the right way, the SOPs were not followed for that local court because they weren't familiar with them. And when those things happened, there were failures. Courses, I mean, court cases get kicked out for procedural errors all the time. So that's also relevant. But that doesn't mean that there was not something going on, that there was not something amiss during those days. I think Charlie Kirk says it. He says, um, you witnessed 51, quote unquote, intelligence officials. These are former, former uh, intelligence officials, intelligence community senior level folks colluding with big tech to censor a bombshell story about a laptop that directly implicated Joe Biden. That is still being fought right now. Another quote, you, you, you campaign tirelessly. This is also really relevant. This is, this is what people saw versus what people felt. They saw Donald Trump crisscrossing the country, doing sold out arenas, uh, historic enthusiasm. I think that's probably accurate. There are people that were everywhere turning out for Donald Trump. And then you had who? Joe Biden hiding in a basement, which he covers in a second. Your, your opponent, this is also relevant, that's why I threw it on the screen. Your opponent is a two-time failed candidate, disqualified for plagiarism once, who barely survived the primary. He was getting destroyed by people like uh, Tulsi Gabbard. He was getting destroyed by people like, uh, what's our other favorite guy over there? Um, oh yeah, Kamala Harris <laughs> guy. You know, accused of racism and a bunch of other things because he's an old dude who basically barely was there and he looked like an empty vessel and then he doesn't leave the basement during the primary season. Here's the things that bothered me the most because I just wanted, I just wanted to look at facts. As 
Donald Trump wins, the, and, I, and I didn't fact check this number, so if this is inaccurate, you guys double check, but it says he won 74,222,958 votes, which was more than any presidential candidate has ever won. 74,222,000 votes and exceeded every single thing that had ever happened. But somehow you learn that in this election, for the first time in 120 years, you had the highest percentage of turnout and the most people have voted by a record 20 million, not even close. That is a huge amount of people to have turned out. The largest turnout in U.S. history, breaking previous records by two zero million votes. Twice the number of people that live in the city of New York turned out to vote in this country. That's pretty amazing. 140 million people voted and made it the highest turnout in 120 years. And yet somehow you lose by 42,000 votes in three states that had significant election irregularities, dropbox scandals, controversies, and despite winning practically every bellwether state and county. One of the things that I actually mentioned to the, uh, to the guys at Reuters, I said, look, here's a real problem I have. When you say that Biden won by the margin that he did, which was pretty incredible, with the, he had the most number of votes ever. He was the, theoretically the most popular U.S. president to be ever elected. But we already had that person. First, it was Barack Obama, and after that, it became Donald Trump. Those were the numbers. And what we saw was, is that Joe Biden supposedly beat both of those men from his basement, despite getting the lowest number of county wins. He won less counties than Barack Obama did and got more votes overall. That looks really weird. And so when he said, you think the election was stolen, I said, I don't know, but I have an instinct that it didn't go the way that it was supposed to. And I also have an instinct the FBI didn't investigate it, which they did not. And the statement that he made, you know, he, he basically was trying to defend it. I said, I don't know if it was stolen or not. I, definitively, I don't have the proof and neither do you. That's what I said. And neither do you folks. We all have an inkling of what, what, what did or did not happen. But what I also know is, is that people who were conservative and they used a proxy for conservatives, just knowing how many children you had. There was a gentleman who retired from the FBI. He'd been on the election fraud task force in Washington field office for over 10 years. He had something north of eight children, which is a stand in a proxy for someone who's a religious person. That's almost always the case. And if you're religious, you must be conservative. That's the thinking of the FBI. And he was removed by Timothy Tebow, who was the assistant special agent in charge, who was eventually walked out for his political standings and the things that he did to violate, to violate FBI policies. And yet, did we have another investigation turned over? No, it did not happen. And they turned over power. And then for everyone who wants to claim that Donald Trump's aim was to stay in the White House, I know that it wasn't his aim because he left the White House. I can look at history and decide that, and so can you. So that's very troubling to me. Again, when you hear uh, Biden say things like, we, truth, uh, we, we choose truth over facts, the facts are is that they're very troubling. The truth is, is whatever they've been able to get people to repeat over and over and over again. Let me do a sponsor real quick. I want to say thanks to my friends over at uh, Patriot Coolers who actually allow us to continue doing this sort of thing. Where did my, huh, it went away. <laughs> I can see it on one side, but it looks like the it doesn't pop over onto the screen here. So let me just say it. I've got it sitting on my desk right now. This is the 16-ounce. It is my preferred home beverage carrier, a double-walled stainless steel with stars on the bottom. You can actually hear it. You've got the, uh, you've got our distressed American flag from the O'Boyle family sweatshop. Outstanding products. Go to patriotcoolers.com. Use the promo code Kyle. It will get you 10% off. If you buy two of them or so, you're going to get uh, free shipping. Definitely do that. Patriotcoolers.com. The promo code is Kyle. And you can follow them on social media if you like. They've got great stuff as far as the, the, the media type uh, product images and stuff. Go to there. It's at Patriot Coolers. They're on True Social, and they're also on Truth. Uh, they're also on X. And if you were to tag me and them, you'll probably see your your uh, pictures boosted. Some of you guys have sent me stuff, and I've tagged them on it because I like seeing it. I really do. Every time I see one of their products, I go like, "Man, that's a really good looking. That's a good looking mug. That's a good looking cooler." Their hard sided coolers are far more attractive to me than something like a Yeti. Um, it, maybe it's just the square design and, and the masculine kind of sit, but it also is more modular. So it's able to sit in places and they have really thoughtful things on them. Like you can actually swap out the, uh, those little, uh, rubber stoppers that will actually keep the thing locked down. They've got holes in them. So you can actually secure them and lock things up. Definitely worth your time. Patriotcoolers.com use promo code Kyle. All right, let's, uh, let's, <laughs> I just talked about this at the breakfast table. This might blow your minds. It won't, I, I should say that again. It will not blow your mind. 
but it might surprise you to learn that Barack Obama, the formerly most popular president before Donald Trump's election, and then whatever happened in 2020, Barack Obama just won his fifth Emmy. <laughs> He's got five Emmys. Like uh, When I said that to my wife, she was like, do these men just need validation so badly that they just should have God? And I said, they don't need God. They have themselves. This seems to be the case. Uh, here it is. Barack Obama wins Creative Arts Emmy for Outstanding Narrator on the, I guess, the documentary Working, What We Do All Day. This is coming from CNN. I had no idea that he'd won five Emmys. And it reminded me that Cuomo won an Emmy for doing COVID briefs that were based on fantasy, that were based on false statements, that were not true. Isn't that incredible? Is it not incredible to think that Obama had previously won uh, another one for an outstanding narration in, 20, uh, was it uh, 2022, for the National Parks documentary they did on Netflix? Now he's got this one, a four-part miniseries. <laughs> it's like, why? Why do these people get awarded? It, it just tells you, in so many ways, like when I was a kid, there were two people that won Emmys. It was like really good news broadcasters and then also like the garbage from soap operas who were, you know, uh, melodramatic actors and actresses. You know, that's kind of that's just kind of what it is. And now you have a former president who's out there in the political sphere in many ways is still doing a lot of directing and and leading of the Democrat Party. It's not like he stepped away quietly and didn't do anything. I just remembered in the chat. Yeah, he got a Nobel. He got a Nobel Prize as well. <laughs> These people are. Uh, this guy's award winning for doing what? For just showing up. Uh, that that bothers me in so many ways. Only because that we're supposed to have a meritocracy in this country. In theory, you would be looking at uh, a country that is serious when they say the best of us get promoted on. Not like the most charismatic here, but the most accomplished and. In many ways, I think Barack Obama accomplished one of the worst things that's ever been done. He accomplished something that I had talked about with the Reuters guy. And the thing that he accomplished was is that he brought racism back to America as a forefront topic after we had basically moved on from it. We'd been over it. We said, Meh, racism, we're done with that. We don't care what you look like. We care what you do. We care what you say. Most of the things that I remember watching when I was a kid, and many of you will as well, hanging with Mr. Cooper, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Sister Sister, Moesha, um, you know, how about Die Hard? Like, it didn't matter. The, the lead characters often were black, but it had nothing to do with them being black. They were family people. They were relatable because they were in a high school. Uh, you know, all these people that we remember growing up with, I don't remember them being specifically, like, hired because they were black. They were just hired because they were interesting and they told a good story. And the story was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was not about a black family, necessarily. It was actually about rich versus poor, which is a very American sort of story and narrative, you know? Hanging with Mr. Cooper was about a cool teacher. It didn't matter that he happened to have darker skin. That was irrelevant. Barack Obama changed that in many ways. And now he's getting awards for his narrations about work, something that doesn't seem like he actually probably knows much about, at least the work that most people who are in this country have to do where their hands end up calloused. I'm in a strange scenario in my life for the first time. Like I have less calluses on my hands than I'm, than I'm ever used to. I used to do a lot of shovel work. I've done manual labor. I've lifted a bunch of trays and served a bunch of food. I've, you know, cooked. I've also sat at a desk and done this, and I was with FBI when I was doing that. At least I tried to do the most outdoor job possible. It's very weird to me that people who are so elitist have decided to tell us what work is and get an Emmy for it. I mean, is that not – it kind of it kind of breaks it down for you in a way that you may not have otherwise experienced. Bizarre. Totally bizarre to me and uh, beyond, beyond comprehension that it's his fifth. But I just wanted you to know that his award-winning performances are performances. They're not necessarily anything of substance. I don't think anybody would say, oh, you were on television. I, Cuomo is a great example of this. So anyway, I wanted to bring that up. Let's uh, let's get into something deeper here because there's a lot of things that have been pushed around. This is the most interesting pushback. Uh, someone that many of us will not have a lot of respect for, do not much think very highly of, this guy Bill Barr. He was the uh, the last attorney general under Trump's four years. And he says here uh, from Just the News, this is John Solomon's outfit. He says, uh, Bill Barr stated the Justice Department went too far in prosecuting J6 Capitol riot cases. Uh, some people, such as those who assaulted police officers and broke into the Capitol, should be prosecuted for J6. And then obviously others probably should not. Well, that actually is exactly the position that I've been holding. It took him this long to say it. That was the case right away. And I had that conversation with a Reuters reporter on Saturday night, on January 6th. He says they went too far in charging more than 1,200 people. The, it'd be interesting to note if they were done with, if 1,200 was the end of it. It is not. It's the beginning. And I'm going to play you a clip from Matthew Graves that says that. 
He says, like everything the, the left does, they did, I think, go too far. In the same way that they pushed the racial narrative. It was like they got to the top of the hill, they were victorious, and then they just kept going. He said, I think they cast their net far too broadly, and they've been hounding people that really just walked into the doors in the Capitol and hung around. I think they took it too far. We don't need to get too deep into the story to know that, one, Bill Barr is, in fact, correct, and many of us should think the same way. And more importantly, and most importantly, perhaps— this is the standard. When you are a leftist, when you are a progressive, it isn't about getting to a victorious point. For them, the journey is the reward, and the reward is always pushing forward. So what they did on racial equality in this country or some of the other things, they literally marched all the way up to the top of the hill. They got to the precipice up here. They're at the crux of the situation. Now people are no longer looking at race. They can accept people for their value as human beings. We have the Martin Luther King Jr., the content of the character being evaluated, your skill set and what you bring to America. Amazing. I mean, it was a great time. Late 90s, early 2000s was really incredible. Even with the 9-11 and everything else, people in this country looked around and, and, and I think that we reached maybe the, the, the high point for almost all of the American values that we all hold dear. And then, and then they kept pushing. And then it's like, not only do you have to uh, allow gay people to be gay in public, but we also have to make a thing that is marriage be something that they deal with. Uh, we all have to internalize and call something that is not. We have to call it what they call it. We have to use the same term. Why wouldn't? Why was civil union a problem? Because they wanted to be able to make it on par with. Then they need you to celebrate it because you celebrate marriage in other places. Why don't you celebrate these? And so on. And the same thing about race. Which to the which it's actually gotten a backlash. There's a guy named Adam Coleman that um, we've had him on the show, and I like him very much, and I think he's very sensible. And and I said the saddest thing for me is watching otherwise capable people get hired, and the assumption is the default assumption is that they're like one of these diversity, equity, inclusion type hires that they're a diversity hire simply because of their skin color. Because what they've done is they've cheapened it for people who have darker skin who are otherwise listed. You know, previously we used to call them minorities, but these people that are diversity candidates. They're undermined by the system, even if they're highly uh, competent, even if they would otherwise rise to the top. Now, the good news is, is that we're as Americans on the on the political right that are relatively conservative and want to judge the individual based on their individual abilities. We'll pretty much give them the it's like, OK, well, I wasn't sure what to think about you when I saw you, which is a terrible thing. That's actually prejudice. And the left created that. But, you know, if you're competent, then I'll be like, ah, oh, you're competent. The end. That's good. But what a, what a sad thing that the default position has actually moved to a very negative. And the default position for the people on the political left is that if you were involved in January 6th, then you are a terrorist. And that's too far. And it's wrong. And we shouldn't have to deal with that, but we do. That's currently where we sit. All right, I want to cover the speech. I want to cover a couple of little videos here because we've got a bunch of them. And let's bring out the first one. Number one, how about Matthew Graves in his own words? I'll play this for you. You will love it. It will be your favorite. This guy is amazing. He is the United States attorney for the District of Columbia. And I'm going to get a little bit of nuanced information for you all about why it's so relevant the way that he has it. He has ultimate authority on what sort of prosecutions happen. And he's also, you know, in the same little space as the AG. Let's throw this thing out for you. Let's get a little taste of his own words of saying what they did and what they didn't do. I'm going to break it down for you. Here we go. And what happened inside of the building? An important note when it comes to our prosecutions about those who remained outside the building. We have used our prosecutorial discretion to primarily focus on those who entered the building or those who engaged in violent or corrupt conduct on Capitol grounds. But... If a person knowingly entered the restricted area without authorization, they had already committed a federal crime. Make no mistake, thousands of people occupied an area that they were not authorized to be present in in the first place. All right. So the sound dropped on my end, but I've heard them say this a number of times, and it's pretty, it's probably just as good that I don't have to get sick to my stomach listening to it. One of the things that he just said is that uh, anybody that was in the area had already violated uh, the federal law, even if it wasn't a marked area. Is that not problematic? And they just celebrated the number of arrests they've done. And he said they primarily focused on one thing over the other. Primarily, they were interested in people who were violent. And who went in and did property destruction, primarily, but not exact, not exclusively. Do you know what the other thing that they've been doing? They've been slowly moving the needle, going after smaller journalists until they're going to be able to go after bigger journalists who covered the story in a way that was not favorable to DOJ. Here's the big deal. Here's where it really gets strange with Matthew Graves. 
Matthew Graves had the opportunity to take these cases one of two ways. When you are in the District of D.C., which many of you guys know, I spent five years working there, and so I got a pretty good idea of what it looks like. You can bring cases in what's called superior court. That's essentially like going to local court. That is the court that handled D.C. in the same way a state court would. Okay, and they have the same United States attorneys, or at least the same office, will take the information and they will bring it to the lower court, superior court, and they will charge it. And I've had court cases thrown out there because they were low level and they didn't matter. It was a gun charge on a felon who had felonies going back into the 1980s. And they didn't push it forward. Why do they not do it? Because there's rapists and murderers and carjackers and people that are beating the hell out of their girlfriends and stealing cars from, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever, Congress people, FBI agents. And so when that's the case, you know, they prioritize. It's like, okay, violent crime is more important. You broke a window at this building. Don't do that. Here's a $2,000 fine, like go away. Or please plea, plea out to a misdemeanor and get out of my courtroom. Don't waste my time. But instead what he did is he took him to the district court. The district court is the federal court that we think about in other places. When you go in most states, you have either a state court or you have the federal courts. Federal courts in DC are called district courts. And in the district of DC, they charged all of the J6ers in that way. They elevated misdemeanors charge them with felonies and push them into a way that was not currently done ever. Novel. It was a novel way to come after this prosecution. They also set up case squads that specifically only handle January 6th stuff. Steve Friend is sort of the expert on this. This is his policy wonk sort of uh, side, but he went after this very deeply and I saw it from working there. They changed the protocols. That should bother people when you change the protocols for an event that was not a change. Now, I'm 100% behind people who broke windows and fought cops facing some consequences. Totally. That's a reasonable take. But what's also reasonable is I was there in 2020 when BLM protesters and members of Antifa decided to do things like put President Trump in the bunker and burn a, a church that had been there and it was known as the Church of the Presidents right across the street from the White House. When they went onto the White House lawn and they had to step up and put all this different information there, they had to put all these uh, anti-scale fences and they had to clean all this graffiti off because these people lost their damn minds. Did they break things? Yes. Did they destroy federal property? Yes. Were they treated the same way? No. And those are almost apples to apples, or they are oranges to oranges. At the very least, they are oranges to mandarin oranges. They are still in the same citrus family if you were to compare these things. So to say that they are not the same is ridiculous. And I say that as someone who was there and saw people investigating, and I knew people that got hurt. I knew people that went to January 6th and, and you know worked on Ashley Babbitt. And I also know people that got hit in the head with bricks outside of the White House. So either we're fair or we're not. And when you're not fair, what you get is exactly what it looked like, where people saw a fundamental difference and a, a changing of the playbook, and it's not right. Now, why would you change the playbook? Maybe because this is the wife of Matthew Graves. This is the woman who is married to him, and this is what he listens to all day. You know, I almost feel bad for the guy, except he made this choice himself. Let me give you a little video. This is not concurrent, but this is Fatima Graves, his, his spouse. We know what is at stake. It's our reproductive freedom that is at stake. It is our civil rights that are at stake. It is our healthcare access that is at stake. And we are not going back to the days where women were considered a pre-existing condition. We know Judge Kavanaugh's record. So yeah, some of you saw uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders sitting in the back there. So Bernie Sanders, obviously a pretty far left candidate or character, <laughs> but you also heard that woman and she's shrieking. I dropped the decibel level on that clip, by the way, by uh, about 30%. And she's still like, she's screaming into a microphone. Doesn't understand how microphones work. Kim Wexler is correct in the chat. But yeah, that lady and her hot take on what's going on. That they're going to make uh, women a pre-existing condition again or some other kind of insanity. That's the woman that he lives with. So that's a political activist house. That's a house where people think things that are not common in America. That's extremism. And we now have someone married to an extremist who is running these cases, and it is not standard. It's not standard across the country.
It's not the way that people in the United States overwhelmingly think. But she's pretty wild. And she, I'm sure she pushes the envelope. Like, imagine living with that. You'd have to just comply in some ways. You couldn't just, like, handle that. And all that has led to sort of where we're at right now with this speech that happened. Uh, he was going to do it on January 6th, but he did it on January 5th because it was really cold and he's really old and he didn't want to have to deal with that. But here's Joe Biden talking um, about what he thinks is important in this country, and it is not normal. And we got a couple of articles we're going to go to talk about it. So here we go. Here's Joe Biden in his own words. One desperate act available to him, the violence of January the 6th. And since that day, more than 1,200 people have been charged for their assault on the Capitol. Nearly 900 of them have been convicted or pled guilty. Collectively to date, they have been sentenced to more than 840 years in prison. What's Trump done? Instead of calling them criminals, he's called these, these insurrectionists patriots. They're patriots. And he promised to pardon them if he returns to office. Trump said that there was a lot of love on January the 6th. The rest of the nation, including law enforcement, saw a lot of hate and violence. One Capitol Police officer called it a medieval battle. That same officer called vile rape was called vile racist names. He said he was more afraid. Yeah, I'm over here shaking my head about it. How about this? 840 years of total prison time have now been accomplished by this DOJ, and he gets an applause break. And they cheered. They cheered for 840 years of prison for people, many of whom had no violence accusations. They were literally marching around doing something. That seems pretty intense. That seems like a pretty polarized thing. Remember when he was saying that unity was on the ballot and decency was on the ballot and fairness and whatever it is that he does? It's really hard to watch this man. First of all, I don't know what sort of drugs they pump him up with, but he's really pissed when they do. I don't, I don't know what that cocktail is, but it doesn't seem to make him any nicer. And people have said that he wasn't very nice to begin with. So you're getting a lot of that old man screaming at the sky vibe. But on top of it, they keep yelling things about democracy. They keep yelling things about you know, the evils that went on on that day. And you've got this guy celebrating prison terms for his political opponents. Is that normal? Is that what happens? It's just not, that's not the America that I've ever lived in. I want to show you guys something that some of the coverage of this, the, uh, but yeah, let's, let's go to some coverage from Steve Friend, actually, because he wrote a tweet about this that I think is totally relevant. Look at this. You want to act like this is not partisan, that this is not, motivated by politics and imagery and narrative. The FBI arrested three January 6th subjects on Saturday, two days ago, on Saturday. We're talking about the federal government. Let me just read the uh, the FBI Tampa field office. They, they put out this. It says the FBI executed federal arrest warrants early this morning at a ranch in Groveland, Florida, which is in Lake County. The subjects were taken into custody. They were January 6th fugitive. There's a guy named Jonathan Pollock. There's a woman named Olivia Pollock. And then, uh, Joseph Daniel Hutchinson III, the defendants are scheduled to appear today in federal court in Ocala, Florida. No further details about their capture are going to be shared. Steve Friend points out very specifically, this is Saturday. I don't think he got as deep as it could be done. What happened is, and I guarantee, I will absolutely guarantee that they did not get the com criminal complaint that morning or the day before, at the end of the day, before it was too late. They got that criminal complaint days earlier, most likely. That's what we've seen for every single J6 subject. So I will say almost conclusively that that will be the case when it comes out. I will be absolutely shocked to find out if they got it sworn out because they got breaking information on Saturday morning and they had to go get them on Saturday. The reason that they arrested these people on Saturday, I'm willing to stake my reputation on this one, is because they needed three fugitives who had been gone for three years on January 6th itself. They needed to make a statement. The FBI is not done with this. They are still going after people, and they are going to get the arrests on the anniversary of this day. That is not an accident. The federal government does not do arrest operations on Saturday. Pretty much ever. With the outside exception of some very exigent circumstances. I give the example. I wrote one criminal complaint when I was in Albuquerque, uh, Albuquerque Division out of Las Cruces. I wrote one. And the reason was is that we had a guy who said he was going to kill federal judges. He was let out of jail. And then 
he said he was going to kill judges. So we went and got him. We went and locked him up. We wrote a criminal complaint. The judge sworn off on it. I had to swear that we actually arrested him before we had everything done based on probable cause because we heard all the things. Then we had the, the complaint sworn out and got the warrant even after the fact. That's all actually on the up and up. We had probable cause to believe he was involved in it. Then we swore it out in front of a judge. And then we went later on and they did a grand jury. That's how it works. It's very straightforward. That was the only time. The exigent circumstances is we had a dude who was previously in jail who had made recorded phone calls stating that he was going to kill specific federal judges. And then when they let him out of jail that day, I went and got him. And my people went and got him, rather. Some of my, my uh, teammates. I wrote up the complaint. That's pretty straightforward. You think that was going on for these people? Were they a threat hanging out there in the middle of nowhere in Florida trying to just like uh, be on the lam and not be arrested for January 6th stuff? No. And do they need to be arrested on a Saturday? They did not. They did it very specifically. How about this one right now? Because I saved this from the other day. This uh, popped up earlier. This is uh, a, a CBS reporter, whatever, anchor type, talking about the pipe bomber. Have we just memory hold that thing? Are we not interested in that? Shouldn't every single resource be going after this? I'm going to play it for you just because it's fun to listening to people who are at least making an interesting point that we haven't solved any of these problems. Today, the Department of Justice, marking the three-year time span since January 6th, talked about its investigation. It is broad, it is unprecedented, and it has had, had many, many successes. But there's this matter still, the pipe bomb. The pipe bombs placed three years ago tomorrow in neighborhoods outside the Republican National Committee and Democratic National Committee. Three years later, they have not found the person, even though they have offered a half million dollar reward for information leading to the suspect's capture. And even though the Department of Justice again today said those pipe bombs, quote, could have seriously injured or killed innocent bystanders. And they say, in so many words, the suspect may still be a danger. They are still inviting tips. And three years later, they're still not there. In congressional testimony late in 2023, Republican member of Congress speaking to the former Capitol Police chief said it is just simply surprising with all the intelligence, with all the cameras, with all the security and police around Capitol Hill that they haven't found their person. And today, when speaking to reporters, three years later, the Department of Justice just didn't entertain questions about the pipe bombs. And even though they did lengthy public interviews one year after January 6th about the search for the pipe bomber, they haven't done them since. They rejected a request to do them last year and didn't take those questions today. Which leaves open the possibility that it after an unprecedented success in the largest investigation in U.S. history, the Department of Justice leaves itself vulnerable to criticisms. Yeah, buts about this. All right. The pipe bomber situation is going to evolve in the next couple days, but certainly in the next couple weeks. And you guys are going to know more things than anybody has known. It is coming out. Steve Baker has already got it. He's already got the tapes. He's already seen things about it. We talked about it over this weekend. It's inconvenient. But it is going to do things to the government's narrative, which I keep saying, if you guys are just joining us here on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin, we appreciate you being with us. Give us a thumbs up and a like in there if you're in the live chat. But more importantly, what I want you to know is that what you may have missed earlier is we're talking about narrative and the narrative is going to get debunked about the pipe bomber, about what it was and was not. It's coming. It really is. And some of these things are very problematic. There's things that we know that we have known from the beginning that these were not real devices. There's some proof of that now. I will let Steve be the guy who kind of shares it with you, but I knew this right away because people who were in the render safe program for the FBI's bomb squad told us these were not real devices. They were inert. They were bomb-like. I've said it multiple times. Bomb-like. Had some sort of things that might trigger a dog. They looked like training devices. Many people who know what a, a training IED would look like, that's what a training IED looks like. And the materials in there supposedly were tied to Homeland Security. I don't have substantiation on that. That's what's been reported to us, to me, to Steve Friend, to Garrett, et cetera. And, oh, there's more. It's coming out, and it's going to debunk a lot of the things that are thought. It doesn't mean that somebody who did this shouldn't be caught. Why is that not the most important resources put out there? That should be where you focused all of your resources. Forget the people that broke a window. And that's very problematic for me. I'm going to give you a last little piece of uh, Biden messaging. There's only so much we can handle, but it's worth knowing. They refer to democracy, which they continue to do. Democracy is the tyranny of the majority, which we talk about here very often. If you are talking about democracy, you're not talking about the American Republic. And yet, they think it is now a sacred cause. Hear this out, okay? Continue on with this. The narrative continues. I think what you saw today was the president kick off the year with the reminder of 
uh, the very clear stakes of this election, telling the American people what this election is going to be about. And that's whether or not democracy will remain the sacred cause of uh, the United States of America. All right, let's do the speech. You guys got it. That's that's nauseating as in, uh, as it is. But uh, let's talk about the speech itself. Let's talk about the way that it was covered. Let's go first to uh, Politico. We might as well. Politico covered down on this particular speech saying he blasts Trump as despicable, a danger to democracy. You guys heard it. It's our sacred cause democracy, according to them. They invoked January 6th. The president provided his strongest takedown to date of his predecessor. I'm going to show you another piece. Don't worry, we'll do a balance on this. I've got something from The Hill written by Jonathan Turley. President Biden on Friday declared that defending democracy from extremist forces that fueled the January 6th insurrection three years ago was the naked nation's sacred cause and one that would be at the heart of his reelection bid. Imagine focusing your entire political career on a few hours on a day before you were elected or before you were uh, inaugurated in. All right. Pretty incredible. And uh, amusingly, Joe Biden talks about the Insurrection Act and the fact that he was going to try to put troops out there and do all these wild things. The most crazy thing about this speech to me is, is that Donald Trump did not put troops in the streets. But Joe Biden, or at least the people who were about to do the inauguration of Joe Biden, did. Because I was there on January 20th and 21st and so on, the, the weeks after January 6th, when they locked down Washington, D.C. They erected anti-scale fencing. They put in 10,000 National Guardsmen, who should have probably been there on January 6th to at least control things and make things go functional so that everybody could handle their, uh, their First Amendment liberties in a way that was appropriate and didn't infringe on anyone else's liberties. But instead of doing that, what they did was they let something happen, it appears, because there's a number of instances where the intelligence failures you just heard about on the CBS clip, those failures led to an, an ability to exercise a very disgusting and tyrannical take. He says, in what uh, resembles an unofficial campaign kickoff, Biden took square aim at his likely general opponent, general election opponent, Donald Trump, denouncing his efforts to remain in power in 2020, unleashing his strongest language yet against the once and possibly future foe, Biden tore into his predecessor, deeming Trump despicable and a danger to the nation he once led. Whether democracy is America's sacred cause is still the most urgent question of our time. You guys hear where it's coming from. You heard it in his spokesperson. That was a comps director that was speaking previously. The choice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past and not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy to put himself in power. He then went on to talk about the past and Donald Trump and his personal takes on Donald Trump, which is what we're going to talk about real quickly here, because from the Hill, Jonathan Turley, this is an opinion piece entitled Joe Biden is no George Washington and Valley Forge proved it. I think that's a wonderful title. That's what happens when you have intelligent people writing instead of whatever we just saw from Politico. And apparently, John, uh, during that speech, he said this is like something out of a fairy tale, a bad fairy tale, which, which Turley says is the most accurate observation of the entire address, kicking off his 2024 campaign. The speech was a masterpiece of contradiction. I, I know you guys are, are dying, so I'm, I'm bringing this to you. All right. It was a masterpiece of contradiction. Biden started by denouncing how Donald Trump's campaign was only about him and obsessed about the past. And then he spent virtually the entire speech obsessing about Donald Trump and the past January 6th of 2021. <laughs> I threw it on the screen because it's a good little quote. It was an early indication of the Orwellian character of the speech facing the lowest polling numbers of any modern president. Biden attempted to uh, a constructive substitution. Democracy is on the ballot, he said, so voters should not have to vote for him. They just see Biden and they should read it as, quote unquote, democracy. The Democrats really love this word democracy, even though we do not have one, even though they will have they will bend over backwards into pretzels to be able to try to substitute that word for a constitutional republic that operates on federalist principles, but also is tempered by anti-federalist bills of rights. Anti-federalists are people who thought the federal government should not be too strong and not be able to infringe on your civil liberties. It turns out they were probably correct at the end. The Bill of Rights was the compromise to get the anti-federalists into the table to sign off on the U.S. Constitution, right? If we understand history, we know that. Democracy was a problem. They knew it was a problem. The tyranny of the majority, the reason that we had things like the Electoral College, which are somewhat elitist, is because people make bad decisions individually. And as a group, it should take an overwhelming supermajority to do things at a federal level because the federal government should not have broad sweeping powers, which we've all failed and let it get through. That's where it's at now. So 
Ah, Turley says it will uh, require more than an act of substitution at the voting booth. It would actually require a willful act of blindness. In fact, dozens of Democrat officials have sought to remove 126 Republicans from Congress on the same basis. And even as Biden was telling citizens to vote Democrat to preserve, quote unquote, democracy, a Democratic activist seeking to remove a GOP congressperson from the ballot was doing so in a nearby Pennsylvania district. His speech would have been more credible if he had joined principal Democrat politicians who have announced a nationwide effort. They denounced it. But instead, he kept quiet on that. He's calling it, uh, you know, he's focusing on one individual and he's, you know, won't say anything about court packing and a bunch of other things. This, this is actually a really good article. It's worth your time. You can find it for free at The Hill. Type in Joe Biden is no George Washington and read that for yourself. Like I said, worth your time. I would go there and, uh, and read all of it because it's a very sober take on it. It's not emotional, but it is true. And uh, on top of all this stuff, we're seeing ultimate failures. We're seeing failures left and right. And those failures, it turns out, were predictable. You guys remember what I said when we had a, a, a speaker contest and they were trying to figure out who's going to be the speaker of the house and I told you no one for speaker is better? How about this one? How about that? Does that bother you? You should be upset. This actually came out of the loop, and, uh, and I found it on Newsmax, but I'm going to read something from Daily Wire. The House and the Senate leaders have reached a spending deal, $1.59 trillion in government spending, a breakthrough to avert the shutdown, which will be pending in eight days. Um, the members of the House Freedom Caucus actually went and evaluated. They said it's actually higher than that. It's like $1.68. We're going to spend a ton of money to kick the can down the, down the line. It's a continuing resolution. And the messaging that has come down from those powers that be, the people that are in the Republican powerhouses that uh, want to maintain influence, the talking point crowd, have said that they're going to get behind Speaker Johnson and they're going to pass this uh, continuing resolution and they are going to back all of this money. We desperately need a government shutdown. The fact that our government, that our Congress has passed less bills than ever should be considered a victory for Americans. And instead, what we are doing is we are looking at it like somehow that is a failure for them not to just keep printing money and sending it out to causes that are absurd. I told you, no one for speaker was the answer. If no one is in the speaker's chair, they can't bring any bills forward. Nobody can vote on them and it doesn't make a difference. Then we don't lose any money. We spend about $10 million a, year, a month on the congressional salaries and all the staffers and all that nonsense. We operate the building, but those people can't get anything done. Brilliant. Best case scenario. Founders would have loved that. The founders of this country would have loved that. They would have just sent them home. Collect your money. Again, House Freedom Caucus saying it actually is going to cost $1.658 trillion, not the $1.59 because they're using Washington math and it's actually a spin job, as if the American people care the difference between $1.65 and $1.59 trillion. We're talking about trillions with a T. Whoa, that is so much ridiculous money for just a few months is what we're talking about there. That should bother the living hell out of you. Billions and billions of dollars written for all kinds of non-defense discretionary funding, all kinds of stuff, when instead they should be solving problems and they're not. But they're going to they're gonna tout it as a victory. The Democrats are actually winning, even though they are the minority. And uh, that's because the, the Senate is pushing it and the president will sign it. And so we lose. The American people lose every single time. And meanwhile, lest we, uh, lest we be outdone, they're actually going to tout this as a total victory. You've got, uh, you've got Janet Yellen, right? She's going to tell you that uh, actually the economy is really good. And so you should vote Biden on, on the merits. Here it is. Here's Janet Yellen telling you things that you guys didn't realize. People are founding new businesses and spending money like they're having a great time. Check this out. This is your bank account is lying to you. Um, they're spending in ways that suggest they're uh, happy with their financial circumstances. We're seeing uh, a huge number of new businesses being formed that an investment in American businesses that suggests confidence in the future of the economy. I think those are all good signs. Okay, you heard it, folks. So uh, you're lying to yourself, your lying eyes in your bank account and whatever's been going on and the prices that you see. That's your, uh, you know, that's just your imagination. That's on you. And I'm sorry that you feel that way. Uh, lest you think that this is all made up, like I said, narrative, acting, Emmys, all of these things go together. You guys, should we just do a video of acting and then we'll cleanse the palate? I promise you, I do have something that's kind of funny and fun, but uh, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't play this guy. Uh, this is Michael Fanone. He was a incredibly important part of the January 6th narrative. He also has neck tattoos. He's got previous allegations of racial discrimination in his previous gigs. He seems like a real winner. He is actually fighting for the thing that Joe Biden said he was when he was trying to get reelected. He's still running this gambit on uh, the soul of the American people. Are you ready for nausea 
This is a, uh, a clip. Comes from MSNBC. Guy's name is Cap. What's his name? Uh, Capheart. Capehart. I don't know if he's gay or he's just effeminate, but this is one of the worst bit of acting. There's no Emmy for this. Stand by. Here it comes. Um, grab your barf bags. Do you think that there's a risk here of disenfranchising voters? I think the biggest risk of disenfranchising voters happened on January 6th, when Donald Trump tried to steal the presidency from the American people. Make no mistake, that is exactly what he intended to do. Uh, we are a country of laws and of constitutions. There are qualifications for office. Uh, so, for example, if a lot of voters wanted to vote for Arnold Schwarzenegger, they wouldn't be able to do so because he is disqualified from running for president under the United States Constitution. I mismarked my clips, but that one's equally bad and will also make you feel sick. Sorry about that. I'm sorry about your blood pressure for all of you that are watching that. And, of course, uh, I'll get you guys the, the Kaplan piece or the Capehart one from... Fanone. Uh, he basically just says he's trying to sell books and that's really important. All right. So that's as much as we can handle. Uh, I love it when someone tells you that, uh, that Donald Trump, uh, they know what the motive of Donald Trump was on a day. And then they saw him uh, execute that motive by doing the opposite of what they said, that they are basically are not going to take what actually happened as evidence. They're actually just going to do what, what their fantasies say. This is a dangerous thing. Totally gross, totally weird, totally backwards. And uh, we're running towards the end of our time here. But I do want to thank you guys for your attention. I saw we had a, a, almost a record chat here from uh, <laughs> from folks coming in on uh, on rumble.com slash Kyle Seraph. And if you guys have never visited us before, thanks so much. Make sure you're following the channel. Make sure you give us a thumbs up and a like in the live chat. And uh, also, let's do a couple of quick thank yous. Uh, how about folks doing a five-star review? I got one right here for you. Give me one moment to pull it up on the screen. And here we go. Coming from our Apple, this is an Asian Oki. I don't know why I like that so much, but uh, Asian Oki has a nice ring to it. If you guys know, I went to the University of Oklahoma. It's a five-star review that says clear-headed discussion. I hope that's what today was. Love hearing you and your guests discuss current events from a security professional. Try to come at it from a professional angle. Try to come at it from a sober place. We do need to take down some of this. We need to take down some of this big emotional rhetoric. We need to take it down a notch and make sure that people can can just relax and kind of see each other as Americans and not some of this uh, wild stuff. And I do want to say thanks to Up True Breed for the $100 Rumble rant. Just says, bless be Kyle Serafin and America, America, America. 100% agree with you with the America part of it. Uh, and I'm grateful for you guys being here and supporting all this stuff. We're living in wild times, folks. And the only way we're going to do it is by seeing things for what they are, trying to cut through the nonsense, try to stop being uh, as as charged as the other team, the other the political left wants to do. So I've got something that will take you down just a little notch, just a little something funny. Sometimes when you're doing, you know, some very serious task, you get, you know, chased off and you, and you follow a squirrel. That's what we say. Oh, squirrel. There it is. Let me give you guys a little squirrel and then uh, we'll, we'll show you the merch store and then we'll walk out of here. So let's do a squirrel. Take a deep breath. This squirrel is, uh, you know, he's got it harder than you. Think about the eagles, man. My girl took all my nuts and all my babies. She fought a raccoon, now she's got rabies. But I don't even care that I'm all alone because I got the birds and the bees to treat me at home. And you dog's a bitch for trying to bark at me. You couldn't bark if you're born on the side of a tree. Yo. So it's done, baby. Let's go. I love putting nuts up inside my mouth. And when I grab this mic, I'm going to spit them out. What? No. Alvin, cut that part out. Because I'm feeling like I'm running and I got to get away. And I got to watch out for the birds of prey because the hawk and the eagle eat my people. Why is this world so nuts and evil? There it is, man. The hawks and the eagles trying to eat his people. At least you guys don't have to deal with that, right? just because Joe Biden wants to lock up some of your friends down there. <laughs> We're trying to take it easy. I want to say also a big thanks to uh, Carlisle uh, or Carly Ice. Is that right? Carly for uh, another $50 rant saying, I love the show. Thanks, Kyle and crew, 100%. We're, we're grateful for all of you. Honestly, we do this because it's fun for you and fun for me. And I get to at least have a little bit of detox. My blood pressure is lower because of the way that you guys are out there listening to this, all that. All right. So uh, let me say also while we're doing blood pressure things, let's make sure we keep the blood pressure up over at the O'Boyle Family Sweatshop. Guys, go to the-dispendables.com, the-dispendables.com, and you'll be able to buy a, a cool looking hoodie just like this one, or you could buy any of our Suspendables merch. That's going to keep Garrett O'Boyle's family moving. It's going to keep the kids' fingers worked to the nubs. They need to understand the value of hard work. Apparently, starting a new business. We're one of those new businesses Janet Yellen was talking about, I guess. So there it is. You guys can check out the pins. A lot of people see those in public and they're like, hey man, where can I get the pin? You can get the pin at the-spendables.com, the merch store. You can get three of them for 30 bucks. You can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, 
K-Y-L-E will save you like 10% there as well. That's just a little discount. So we're tracking where it's coming from in case case Garrett actually ends up getting uh, other sponsorships in there. And it doesn't sound like there's any more Sherpa hoodies. I think they were a real pain in the butt for Garrett to print. But send him an email. Let him know what you want. There's a contact form on the website as well. You can reach out to G-O-B Actual uh, on either True Social or on X, or you can hit him up on the website, the dash, don't forget the dash, suspendables.com and check out the merch for all the kind of fun stuff in there. Lastly, I'll just say thanks to my buddies over at Catholic Vote who sponsor the program, who underwrite our lifestyle here and are keeping us going. I'm actually going to go out to a um, a retreat with them and meet some of the folks that are, are helping kind of work behind the scenes and put together the loop and stuff like that. So check out the loop, guys. Go to catholicvote.org. Feel free to give to them generously if you are so interested in maintaining America's Catholic advocacy, which is to say a universal Christian church position on faith, family, and freedom. The loop is probably the best one-minute email you'll ever get. Check out catholicvote.org. And that's it for us today. It really is. I'm very appreciative of being back in my saddle. It was an interesting trip to New York. I'm glad to be back home, and I look forward to seeing you guys again tomorrow. God bless you. Be safe out there. And uh, you know, don't forget about the American Rorschach test. The narrative is strong, but we can still overcome it. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.